0: Um, who are known as banabanas. So these are women who travel back and forth constantly between Mali and Senegal to buy or to sell goods. So I'll focus on on these banabanas, and these are, are basically Muslim women. Um, all of them were Muslim, uh, and most of them are uh, single women who are either divorced or were widowed. Uh, some of them have been abandoned by their families, uh, for example, due to having a child out of wedlock. Um, So these are really sort of uh, female household heads who are supporting themselves through this sort of mobile livelihood of of trading and and travelling. So so what I'll do in this presentation is to focus on the different ways that these Banabanas embedded themselves in locations, nodes and networks in the environments that they travelled through and briefly stayed in. So in other words, their emplacement and placemaking. So I spent uh, 12 months doing qualitative fieldwork in Dakar, uh, just in Dakar. Unfortunately I couldn't travel with these women because of the ongoing war in Mali at the time of my fieldwork, uh, which was in the north of the country. So I would have loved to partake in these journeys but I had to kind of rely on the sort of post hoc uh, uh, narratives of, of these travels by these women. Um, so yeah, 12 months of research in, in Dakar in 2013. And uh, just to sort of uh, explain a little bit the contextual background of what I'm gonna present here. Um, so Malian trade in Dakar used to be closely associated with the Dakar-Niger Railway. So that's the railway you've got here. So it's called Dakar-Niger because it goes from Dakar to the Niger River in Mali, not to Niger. So the Niger River is down here, close to the capital of Mali, which is Bamako. Uh, and this is 1,287 kilometers long and just Cuts through Senegal, basically this railway line. Um, so yeah, so this this railway line was closely associated with Malian trade. Uh, up until recently, this railway was basically the only means of direct transport to Dakar for the majority of Malians. Uh, it was the only way that they could access the Atlantic coast uh, and, and Dakar's harbour. Um, so the yeah the roads that uh, connect the two countries that connect Senegal and Mali were only paved very recently. So in 1999 on the Senegalese side and in 2006 on the Malian side. So there's not really been sort of these transnational highways up until very recently. Um, so uh, so for almost a century, um, female railway merchants, which are these women who are known as banabanas. Uh, They they used to travel back and forth with their goods on the passenger train. And in the late 1980s, a Malian market developed around the Terminus train station in Dakar. So many of these bannabannas actually acted as suppliers and middlemen for the Malian traders at at the market in Dakar. And uh, gradually they also began to sell their own goods, uh, usually as retail, at this Terminus train station in Dakar. Uh, and then they used the terminus tra- the train station as a dormitory in between the two trains. So it was very sort of rapid just going there, selling their goods and taking the next train back. Um, however, what happened in 2009 was that the passenger train that these banabanas had been traveling on was taken out of service after privatization. And the Malian market in Dakar was demolished by the local authorities in, in, in Senegal. Um, so basically, this presentation then compares the emplacement of the Banabanas before and after these kind of rather dramatic events that really sort of transformed this whole trade infrastructure that had uh, underpinned the Somalian trade in, in Dakar. So I'll begin the presentation by looking at the journeys that these Banabanas were taken and um, particularly focusing on the shift between rail and road and then uh, subsequently I'll move on to examine the women's emplacement in Dakar during their um, temporary stays in the city. So um, just to sort of explain a bit the conceptual framework that I'm working with. Um, so basically what I've, what I've said that I'll do is to compare the emplacement of Malin and before and after these infrastructural changes. And the theoretical starting point for my analysis um, is the phenomenological observation that to exist is to exist in place. So I use the concept of place um, to refer to that which describes our experience of, connection to and relationship with the environment we inhabit. So this means that even in less uh, stable situations of transit, mobility and transport, we actively create and engage with place. So this kind of um, maybe repeats some of what Johara was saying a couple of weeks ago at the seminar about how even transit migrants emplace themselves in Morocco during the very short stays. Um, So so the fact of of sort of always being emplaced um, does not imply that emplacement is necessarily experienced as meaningful. Um, people may not always be able or willing to establish a sense of familiarity or belonging in the places where they find themselves. (coughs) Places and our relations with them are subject to constant change. Places are dynamic processes and not mere physical locations in space. Places are created and recreated through our interactions with the environments we inhabit. So, um, another dimension of, of sort of thinking about place is is that um, by focusing on place, I'm also trying to moderate the spatial term within the social sciences. So the spatial term, um, at least in anthropology, emerged around the 1970s and it's been enormously influential in challenging conventional anthropological approaches, particularly to approaches to culture, to power, and to place. Um, So you you know, work of Gupta and Ferguson, of James Clifford, and so on. Um, So by crossing established uh, spatial cultural boundaries and emphasizing motion and spatial mobility these scholars were able to connect different (coughs) scales of analysis, for example from the local to the global, uh, and to challenge the rationalist separation of humanity into these sort of semi-sealed cultures. Um, So, in this way, this hegemonic model that celebrates the rooting of peoples and the territorialization of national identities has been thoroughly deconstructed by anthropologists over the past decades. However, it's it's my contention that there is a risk that the spatial turn itself is being used as a kind of a new hegemonic model, replacing the old one, um, which emphasizes flows and movements at the expense of other salient analytical perspectives. So particularly in research on mobile and migrant populations, um, the analytical privileging of motion and flow risks ignoring the fact that people always exist in place and in this way overlooking people's experiences of, connections to, and relationships with the environments they inhabit, even as they are moving through these places. The wider point I'd like to make, then, is to not only bring flows and spatial movement into analyses of place, but also try and bring place into analyses of mobility, and to thus sort of explore the intersections between the two. So turning to the sort of empirical material that I was going to talk about, um, I'll start with these journeys, as I mentioned, the Banabana's journeys to Dakar from Mali. So um, when the Malian marketplace at the terminus train station in Dakar was demolished, and when the, passengers, uh, with the, the, the passenger train um, when it stopped running, many of these Banabanas actually uh, decided to stop coming to Dakar. And one of the sort of prominent reasons that I was given was that these bus journeys, um, so bus journeys had started up in 2003, and the Banabanas really found these bus journeys just too exhausting. Uh, the passengers were crammed into their seats. They could not move during the nearly two days of travel. And the few stops on the route were mostly at checkpoints and border posts where the travelers would be harassed by corrupt officials. So this is how these women describe the journeys to me. Uh, and one uh, female banabana describing her journey explained, your feet are so swollen that you think you had infantiasis. Even your entire body hurts because you don't move. So one apparent advantage of the buses over the train um, was that they were generally faster, departures were more frequent, and there were fewer stops on the route. Um, so, but meanwhile, many of the women felt nostalgic about the train, which they had ex- experienced as, as not just a physical uh, space, but as a place of sociality and belonging. So many preferred the stops and slowness of the railway journeys, which had uh, allowed them to engage with other people and places, both inside and outside of the train. The train uh, was largely integrated with the landscapes it travelled through, as passengers entered and exited at the various stations, and exchanges of goods occurred through the windows, thus eliminating the external boundaries of the train. So a lot of sort of exchanges going on you know, into the train, out of the train, within the train itself as well. Um, so whereas train journeys were largely characterized by slowness and stopping, uh, the bus journeys in contrast were largely characterized by speed. And speed in turn was closely associated with profit, both for the Malian bus companies and also for these Malian palapanas to some extent of course. Um, Meanwhile, the priority of speed conflicted with certain financial, social, and personal needs of passengers, drivers, as well as roadside communities. So I've already mentioned the kind of social and physical constraints of speed um, uh, that the speed kind of imposed on the passengers. Uh, Also, because, because of the speed, there were more severe accidents on the buses than on the much slower train. Uh, moreover, the passenger train that constitute well the passenger train kind of constituted a moving marketplace right? uh, with the women sort of selling and buying goods in and out of the windows, uh, but this kind of marketplace could not be recreated on the buses, so the Banabanas were largely impeded from any engagement with the local economies along the route that they traveled on. And in turn, the people living alongside the transnational road were prevented from accessing these long-distance flows of commodities, people, and transport. So this shift from the rail to the road um, entailed different experiences of emplacement and required developments of a different kind of travel habitus for these Malian Panabanas. Meanwhile, these women developed new strategies to emplace themselves in various ways during their bus journeys. So some of them became privileged customers of Banabana bus companies. So people will talk about the Banabana buses and these are buses that would, for example, give cheap tickets to the regular Banabana customers. Uh, they would um, allow the sort of regular Banabanas uh, to sit up in front with the driver and drink tea all along the journey and listen to music with the driver. And they would also um, arrange the separate transport of the Banabana's goods um, because the place on the buses was so limited, of course. So they would help them to sort of find a truck that could then take their goods separately back to Mali. Um, So traveling with their property on the passenger train and negotiating with officials on the route had been a sort of integral part of the banabana profession. And the women were often very reluctant to adapt to this new uh, kind of travel habitus required on the buses uh, where they usually could not travel with their goods. Um, so, you know, the separation of, of passengers and goods was sometimes kind of a traumatic moment at the moment of departure. And I saw some women, you know, start crying if they weren't allowed to take a big fridge with them. And, um, so a very sort of chaotic uh, experience. Um, so these women sometimes colluded with the banana bus drivers, who knew where to hide goods on the buses so the customs officials wouldn't see them. Uh, and the women themselves became skillful at these tactics, and also developed tactics for pushing the limits of luggage transport on the buses. Uh, So in these ways, the women actively emplaced placed themselves on the buses. Um, Of course, as I've mentioned, the interactions with inhabitants living along the road were limited, but the Banabanas continued to engage in strategic (coughs) gift-giving relations with officials that they encountered along the route. So in this way, they kind of continuously embedded themselves in the landscapes that they were moving through. Um, so I'll move now to talk about accommodation and uh, this is a Malian Banabana here on the right and uh, sitting with her Malian host in Dakar. So this is an older woman who lives in a huge Malian compound in the city centre of Dakar and they all just speak Kang, the official Malian language and lots of uh, Banabanas were hosted there. Um, so there is a long-standing Malian tradition of hosting strangers and um, it's, in Pamanankang, uh, so Bamanakang is the, one of the official Malian languages and in Pamanankang this tradition is referred to as uh, jatigiya. So jatiya is a landlord system which is uh, known in, in most of West African countries and has probably existed for a thousand years uh, emerging at the time sort of trans-saharan trade and the big uh, Sahelian trading cities in the medieval period. So the, basically the long distance mobility of West African traders has largely been possible thanks to the presence of Jatagiu in the places of circulation And so you've got uh, Michel Acher saying that the mobility of some is made possible by the immobility of others, and that's basically the Jatigi system. So, um, in addition, uh, with the rise of modern labour migration, the Jataghi system uh, has, has played a central role in the establishment and perpetuation of transnational migration systems landlords have sometimes prospered from hosting traders by giving a, uh, getting a commission from the brokering services that they offered. So introducing these traders to other traders or <coughs> other transporters or wholesale dealers or whatever and, and then they would get a commission from, from the service. Um, but this kind of brokering service was not necessarily the reason why some Malians were hosting Banabanas in Dakar. Um, So, in Islamic West Africa, it's considered uh, incumbent upon a Muslim who has the means to do so to host and feed a stranger. So, there's also sort of an Islamic uh, incentive there. Um, So, I'd argue for these Banabanas, um, staying with a Jataki, a Malian Jataki, represented a form of patriarchal bargaining for some of these women. So patriarchal bargaining is a concept developed by Candiotti in 1988 and um, it, it basically refers to the strategic compromises that women engage in to increase their own power within the constraints of patriarchy. So you could imagine for example a society where Muslim women are constrained to stay within the household, but then they put on the veil to kind of be able to move about in the public. So that that according to Candiotti would, would be a patriarchal bargain. So in terms of these banabanas staying Um, in the house of of a Malian Jataki basically they sort of would confine themselves to the house of a Malian patriarch in order to socially (coughs) legitimize the exceptional levels of mobility and autonomy which was not particularly normal for women to do in in this this, in Malian society and even in in Senegalese society so so that's sort of one way of, of understanding why these women would have a a Malian uh, landlord, Um, but uh, the system of of Jatikia was not inclusive of all the Malian Banabanas who were passing through Dakar. So there were some of these women who simply did not know of any Malians in Dakar who would host them. Uh, There were other women who declined offers to stay with the Jatigi if the accommodation was located um, too far away from the shops and markets in the city centre where they usually purchase their goods. Uh, and then finally there were Banabanas who deliberately avoided staying with the Jatigi due to uh, a desire for social distance. So these women felt that being part of the Jataghi system um, constituted a social and economic burden, and that the hospitality of some jatigi was motivated more by self-interest <coughs> than by religious morals, uh, solidarity or altruism for example. Uh, Also, it was not clear how a jataki in Dakar could cover the costs incurred by hosting female banabanas from Mali, so this could lead to conflict or embarrassment and ultimately result in the banabana moving out. So these were some of the prominent reasons why some of these female banabanas preferred renting a place in a flat in Dakar, uh, thus establishing a more impersonal and contractual type of relation with a landlord, instead of relying on the hospitality of the Malian diaspora in Dakar. So in the past, as I've mentioned, the Banabanas who did not have a local host, they could use this terminus train station as a dormitory, Uh, but this was no longer possible, so basically the train station has been fenced off and you've got gendarmes guarding the place the whole day so nobody can actually sleep there. Um, so what happened was that in 2009 when the market was demolished and when the passenger train stopped running you had these marine Enterprises that started appearing uh, which were servicing these uh, banabanas, uh, combining the provision of accommodation, the transport of goods and brokering services. So they offered these sort of packages to the banabanas. Uh, so, in a way, the decline of the jatiya system and the proliferation of these private uh, Malian enterprises catering to the needs of Banabanas implied a shift towards the commercialization of Malian networks, gradually replacing ethnic solidarity, patronage, and gift-giving relations. Meanwhile, um, in these flats, the close cohabitation with strangers sometimes created tensions and conflicts. Uh, there was also a risk of theft as people could easily uh, enter the flats uh, and the bedrooms were usually not particularly pleasant with bed and all sorts of funny things there. Uh, so for these various reasons um, the women rarely spent much time in the flats. Instead their social and commercial activities mostly occurred elsewhere in the city. Um, so in fact the different spheres of the Banabana's daily lives often unfolded in distinct and physically separate places in the city. So they slept in one place, they bought and sold goods in the second, they um, socialized in a third place, they found their transport in a fourth place, and sometimes they even sent their goods off from, fi- from a fifth place. And of course all these activities used to sort of occur in just one place at the train station. Um, so in this sense, um, there seems to be a kind of a shift in these women's forms of emplacement in Dakar, uh, which seem to have become increasingly compartmentalized. So the Terminus train station had been a place of kind of social spatial density, um, where several different kinds of activities, people and objects intersected and intermingled. And the Banabanas' Banner commercial and social lives had largely unfolded in this one unifying space. Now, the Banabanas that I met in 2013 had kind of created an alternative place that sort of mimicked their former emplacement at the Terminus train station. And this was a gran, and I'll explain now what a gran is. It's a place and you've got three Banabanas there lying in the gran. So in in, uh, Mali, um, the word gran refers to a group of friends who assemble in a regular place where they socialize often on a daily basis. Engaging in chatting, drinking tea, playing cards, listening to music and so on. So that's the ground and it's usually considered a sort of a male phenomenon and it's very rare to hear of any female grounds. So this was really quite an exceptional place in a way. Uh, the grants are often associated with unemployed young men. Um, so this is sort of this reference to the chômeur, which is the unemployed tea drinkers. That's a way of designating these young men sitting in the grounds. Um so in the literature the guns are often portrayed as constituting a refuge, a space for tactical retreat, a space of freedom from formal social constraints for these youths. Uh, meanwhile, the, the guns are often criticized by elders as an unproductive waste of time. So what's particular about the sira ground, so it was called Sida because it was next to a Malian bus company called sira so they called it the Sira uh, ground. Uh, so in the Sira ground, um, the Barabanas were not just idly socializing, but were in fact conducting much of their business. So for some of these women, the ground was a place of opportunity, networking, and economic activity. The commercial complex where uh, Sira and other Malian bus companies were located had become a kind of t- tiny Malian hub uh, where traders and migrants could meet fellow Ramadan speakers, they could transfer money home, buy a bus ticket back to Mali, and purchase small quantities of Malian goods. <coughs> and this of course benefited the Banabanas at the uh, as they had been deprived of their so- social and working space at the Terminus train station. So the ground and its uh, surroundings uh, seem to constitute, uh, seem to kind of reproduce on a much smaller scale, the sort of rich and multifaceted space that had presumably characterized the market um, at the Terminus train station in the past. <coughs> um, so meanwhile, I'd, I'd, I'd say that this the ground and the sort of complex it, it was Located within was was much more ephemeral than the the kind of the terminus train station and the Malian market that that had been there in the past. Uh, so, for example, in terms of its material features, the Khan itself was ephemeral. It had no walls, no doors, and physically it was merely demarcated by the mats and chairs that the members were sitting on, by the handbags, suitcases and plastic bags with goods belonging to the Banabanas, and by the Khan members themselves. So the Graun uh, could literally be packed away, and for example during prayer or periods when no Banabanas were in town, uh, the place momentarily vanished. So as you can see, you know, it's just some mattresses that you can sort of st- stack up against the wall if nobody's there. That really is what constituted the Grand. Um The Grand, I would argue, it added a, a social dimension to the Banabana stay in Dakar and it helped some of them to cope with the loneliness and hardships of their highly autonomous and mobile lifestyle. Meanwhile, the social relations developed in the camp were not necessarily long-lasting and deep felt, um, and relevant uh, and they largely lost relevance once these women were back at home in Mali. Um, So, um, I picked up a study by Eva Iris Sanders, which looks at um, Senegalese female traders (coughs) who go abroad to China and Spain and so on to trade, and she looks at how these women sort of um, uh, try to maintain respectability and a moral reputation, and they do this Uh, Rosanders argues, by erasing the frontiers between the domestic and the public sphere and enlarging the domestic setting to include the foreign space that they are trading in. So, for example, they do this by sort of bringing all their cooking utensils from home and going straight into a hotel room and not leaving that hotel room for the rest of their stay and just using their own cooking utensils to make Senegalese food and so on. So for Rosandas, this is a way that the women kind of try to um, maintain respectability and a moral reputation through these kind of domestic practices. Um, So I was wondering if it could be argued um, that the Syracran constituted a kind of domestication of a foreign space, a way of creating a home away from home uh, for these mobile Malian traders. But I don't think that kind of analysis works. because the kind of homemaking that occurred in the Grand had relatively little to do with the kind of uh, reproducing a hegemonic model of home or any sort of patriarchal bargaining as as Rosenthal is kind of uh, considering it. Rather, the, the Grand actually manifested these women's marginalization from and their rejection of sort of hegemonic home. So the Balabanas in this Ghan were often performing identities that were strictly at odds with the sort of normative models of femininity. Uh, The Ghan was not exactly a haven for pious domesticated women. Uh, There was a lot of rowdy banter, rude joking, and sort of verbal and physical manifestations of subversive, reckless, and highly sexualized female identities. So while the Ghan may have displayed some of the features of domestic space, its location within the public sphere and the enactment of transgressive female identities within that sphere clearly set it apart from other places within sort of normal society. So in this sense, um, I'm thinking that the ground somehow resembles what Foucault termed a heterotopia and uh, heterotopia, heterotopia he defines in contrast to utopia as something like counter-sites, a kind of effectively enacted utopia in which the real sites, all the other real sites that can be found within the culture are simultaneously represented, contested, and inverted. <coughs> so yeah, just, I'll just wrap up now, but basically um, I tried to compare the emplacement in- of, of Banabanas before and after the infrastructural changes that fundamentally transformed their trade Uh, And I focused on the different ways the Banabanas embedded themselves in locations, nodes and networks in the environments they traveled through and briefly stayed in, and which then supposedly sort of emplaced them. Um, So the Banabanas' different social and commercial practices were to a large extent carried over into new places. And this presentation has then sort of showed how different places that were used or created by the Banabanas Banner shaped their activities and experiences, presenting both new limitations as well as new possibilities for these mobile trainers. Thank you.